0: Let's stand together, and in doing so we'll give our reverence to God's written word. For scripture reminds us elsewhere, the grass withers, flowers fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So let's strive to hear it now and heed it faithfully together. Nehemiah Chapter two, the Word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, And for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel." So I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we... His servant will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word and the story that it reveals, not simply the story of the people of God, but the story of the Savior of his people. We ask that you help us to see Christ in all of his beauty and his glory, and that we would rejoice in the mission upon which he came into this world to save us from our sins, to bring us into that everlasting city. And so bless us now, we pray, not simply the reading, but especially the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, and even somewhat last week, I made the point that missionaries are not born, they are made. And in a certain sense, I want to... Play with that theme just a little bit and, and ask the question this morning what what makes a person great? What makes a person great? We have nicknamed a, a generation the greatest generation. And some of you have heard that phrase, and some of you have probably grown up uh, with a lot of respect for that phrase in that generation, and other, others of us who are a little bit younger don't know it quite as well. The great generation or the greatest generation, as is referred to are those who were born uh, roughly between 1901 through 1927. And in particular, they would be those who lived through not only World War I, but the Great Depression as well. Uh, my grandpa, Poppy Joe, as we called him, was born at the very backside of what is referred to as the Great Generation. But in my mind, uh, he lived up to it in a lot of ways. I, I remember him as this much older man who, although he was advancing the years, he had pipes not simply arms, the guy was ripped. He was a plumber. And except for Sunday, I can only picture him always and only wearing the same outfit every day. Uh, These like uh, worker guy pants and this white t-shirt that exposed just the the muscle falling off this man uh, whose hands were, were just rock hard with calluses and yet, in my memory, always perfectly gentle. He was, in many ways, uh, the measure of a man. He was hardworking, miss this guy, faithful husband, faithful father, wonderful grandpa, a very simple church-going man who loved his family dearly. And I would probably say, uh, he was the greatest man I ever knew. Such was the greatest generation. What makes a man great in the sight of God? Well, this morning, uh, we are looking at one of the great men of the Bible And that is Nehemiah, who takes up this mission trip and experiences three things along the way. The favor of the king, an arrival in style, and then opposition that he engages from the enemy. That's the structure of our sermon. We'll follow it through the text. So Nehemiah now is going on a mission trip. And again, missionaries are not born, they are made. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah is, is kind of like the beginning of a great movie. Several interesting scenes set in motion uh, the rest of what is to come. It opens up in the month of Nissan, which for me is a little bit of a playful word because it reminds me of my first car, a Nissan Sentra that I got. It was an 83. This is a thousand years ago. This is back before they had power steering, when you actually could get a workout just driving by turning a car. But it's not that kind of Nissan. It's spelled Differently, but there is something important about the mention of the timing here, what takes place in Nehemiah chapter two at the beginning of the month of nisan it 's a way of highlighting in particular how long Nehemiah, this great man, this missionary, whom we are now slowly getting to know, how long has Nehemiah been praying? If you compare this date in the month of Nisan with the previous date given earlier, it highlights. Now watch this. Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for about four months. That's quite a sustained period of time to pray and fast. That's not to say that he ate nothing at all. Uh, There are fasts where you eat nothing, and there are fasts uh, where you limit things remarkably for the sake of spiritual focus. That is what Nehemiah has been doing now for months. He's a remarkable man of prayer. He's a remarkable man of prayer who's been praying and fasting now these four months because the burden of Israel is upon his heart. That is what makes the man Nehemiah. The burden of the people of God is upon Nehemiah's heart. And so on the one hand, we're told that Nehemiah has been praying and fasting, willfully afflicting himself in prayer for the people of God. The month of Nisan in the Persian calendar would be like New Year. And the scene really opens up with King Artaxerxes effectively at his own New Year's party. This would be a Persian holiday on their calendar. And you begin to sense the formation of a little bit of tension. Here is Nehemiah praying and fasting at the Persian New Year in the presence of the king. And what is Nehemiah's job? Well, he is a cupbearer. And if it's New Year's Eve for a Persian pagan king... And you are a wine-bearing cup-bearer, wine-pouring cup-bearer. This is a busy night. This is a time of drinking wine and celebrating for the Persians and especially for their king. So here we find King Artaxerxes on what may be something like a New Year's Eve party. And Nehemiah, his cup-bearer, looking afflicted. You begin to sense not simply the awkwardness, but potential tension. Why? Because the Persians are partying But Nehemiah is sad. Even Nehemiah himself states the awkwardness of it uh, in that he had not been sad in the king's presence before. This is not a posture that he is known for. This is not a countenance that the king has seen on Nehemiah's place before. And even even more important, uh, there's something actually inappropriate about Nehemiah being sad in the presence of the king. Servants were to keep their personal lives personal. Personal. Servants were not to come before the king parading their frail emotion, especially upon festive occasions. Professional etiquette was required, and the violation of which could be death. In other words, if you're a servant to a Persian king, uh, the implication is leave your personal problems at home. Never come into the king's presence and sadden him. Reminds me of a line from Julius Caesar in the Shakespeare uh, version of it, uh, where Caesar says this, Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep well at night. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. You can see the point. In the presence of the king, he doesn't want people distracting him with their personal problems and emotion. He wants uh, those that are sleek, fat, and cheerful. Nehemiah is a potentially dangerous man, and he is certainly in a dangerous situation. So Artaxerxes asks him the question, why are you so sad? And immediately we are told Nehemiah's internal reaction, I was very much afraid. He realizes the king sees... My skin tone is a little bit off. The king can tell I haven't been eaten. The king can see the redness in my eyes from sadness of heart. And Nehemiah is rightly very much afraid. Uh, This could be a very short book. This could be the end for Nehemiah. To be sad in the presence of the king was a breach of protocol. Nehemiah's reaction might have been rightly and understandably to begin to plead for his life to blow it off, to make up excuses, to even apologize. But instead, what Nehemiah does next is actually rather amazing. He does not plead for himself. He does not render an apology. In fact, in many ways, he abandons himself and he pleads the case of his people, the people of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Notice how he refers to it, verse 3. The city of my father's graves lies in ruin. He's referring to Jerusalem. Now, one thing that's very important to note at this point in Nehemiah, remember Ezra and Nehemiah are two books. Uh, bound together, ultimately with a very thin division in between. And in a certain sense, coming to the beginning of Nehemiah is like taking a slight step back in history. It's like when you're watching a movie, and the movie goes back and forth between different scenes, different characters, and different places, sometimes even different moments in time. And so there's a slight step back here. And why am I telling you that? Uh, because when Nehemiah points out the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, he's standing before the king who ordered it. And there's a rub. Nehemiah is sad because Jerusalem is destroyed and it was Artaxerxes who had it destroyed. Nehemiah, in a certain sense, is now incriminating Artaxerxes. Why am I sad? Because what you and your people have done to me. It's hard to overstate how pregnant, awkward, and vulnerable this moment is. But through the kindness of God... Rather than saying what we might have predicted, off with his head, Nehemiah asked the question, excuse me, Artaxerxes asked the question, so what is it that you are requesting? They say that there are no atheists in foxholes. Nehemiah is in a foxhole, and he is far from an atheist. Everyone prays when bullets are flying, when heads are rolling. This is one of those moments uh, where, in a flash of light, Nehemiah realizes that at this very moment, I might die. Here's Nehemiah in a tight spot. But in this tight spot, what does he do? He doesn't begin stammering. He prays. And I want to say a few things about this prayer. This is a great little slow down and uh, drink in the moment. What, what should you think about this uh, brief prayer that Nehemiah offers? In a certain sense, uh, not even given uh, the particular words. It was brief. It was silent. And it had to be both. Artaxerxes didn't say, why don't you take a few minutes and think about this and get back to me? Nehemiah is on the spot. You could almost wonder if he even blinked. If it was simply one of those moments where immediately someone is looking you in the eyes and you don't have time to walk away, think about it, and come back, or even to pause very long at all. This prayer is brief. It is silent. It had to be both, but it was effective. And it raises a very interesting question Does God hear hurried prayers? Does God hear such a brief, silent prayer, the words of which are not even recorded for us? The answer is yes, and my guess is many of us around the room have probably found ourselves in situations where all of a sudden, in a moment, for one reason or another, you realize, I have to pray, like, right now. A hurried but necessary prayer. In other words, life often... it sounds like an insurance commercial here. Life comes at us quickly. Right? And we often find ourselves praying quick prayers that are born out of urgency and necessity. And these uh, life-born prayers are even modeled in the Bible. Some of the best prayers in the Bible are actually uh, exceptionally brief. Lord... I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, help me. Think about Mark 9. Uh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The prayer of a father for a dying child. Or perhaps uh, one that seems very similar to what we're looking at here from Psalm 22, 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. There are times we need God to show up, and there are times we need God to show up right now. Lord, help me out of this spot right here, right now. But there's something else that's very important about this brief prayer that Nehemiah offers, and that's the backdrop of Nehemiah's brief prayer is actually four months of prayer. Four months of prayer were conditioning this man's heart. Nehemiah was not simply a man of brief, short, desperate prayers. It's the very same Nehemiah that has just been praying for four months that now prays at this excited moment. In other words, those months of prayerful focus prepared him for this moment. For this moment, Nehemiah's heart had been conditioned. And so Nehemiah answers the question. I, I love The way that he answers this question, there's another little cliche, uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. Nehemiah doesn't ask for just a little. He doesn't ask for like a few feet. He asks for the farm. He asks for everything. He tells Artaxerxes everything that he wants. It's kind of like a dream come true wish list that he sort of unfolds. Well, since you're asking, this is what I would like for you to do. Send me to Judah to rebuild it. Send me with letters of protection from the local authorities who won't like it. Send me with letters for provision that I might go to Asaph in charge of the king's forest and get timber for the project. Send me with a letter for a place, the house that he is to occupy. Nehemiah will occupy a house of somewhat noble status. The king asked Nehemiah how long he will be gone, and upon answering, almost like that, the king was pleased to send Nehemiah. Not simply willing, pleased. And that's, that's remarkable. Some time ago, we were forced to ask this question. It comes up again here. Who turns the hearts of kings like streams of water? Who turns the hearts of men and women like streams of water, even pagan kings, as Artaxerxes was? Well, it's God himself. And that's exactly... What God did at this moment. Nehemiah could have lost his life this day. Instead, he sort of gained the world and he became a missionary, now being sent to the people of God by the God of his people, the God of heaven. And what's really cool it takes us to our next point is he arrives in style, sort of. Point two. Everyone loves a grand entrance. It's always fun to watch somebody make a stylish. Entrance into a room. Uh, Nehemiah may not have had a theme, a theme song playing when he rolled into Judah, but he certainly did make quite an entrance. In other words, it would be no small thing for this man sent by King Artaxerxes with letters in hand. Uh, this Persian palace servant to come into this small outlying town of Judah and Jerusalem with an armed guard and letters for the king. This is the kind of thing where from a distance, when you see this royal entourage sauntering up on horseback, you realize somebody important is coming. Something significant is happening. And then comes Nehemiah with letters from the king to rebuild the city and its walls. This is a big deal. This is a punctuated moment. You have to pause and imagine the look on their faces when they realize who this man is and what he has come to do. And the fact that he has letters from the king and the king's armed nobles there to enforce it. That's for this reason, I think that you're given the names of the local rulers and even uh, given their, uh, their details, where they are from. Uh, remember, people in the Bible didn't have first and last names, but they had places of origin. They had sort of national description, and that's what we are given. It's like a narrow way of, narrative way of saying, time to meet the other team. When I was a little boy, another fascination I had was World WWF, World Ride wrestling federation. I was fairly persuaded it was real. (laughs) When I was a child. It was fake, but it was as entertaining as it was fake. One of the most awkward moments I've had in ministry was mentioning from a pulpit as I just did right now that I was persuaded that, that wrestling is fake. And it is. And then after church was rebuked by a man... Who was serious and seriously calling me out for calling WWE as it is now or WWF uh, fake wrestling. Anyway, so it's very little to do with Nehemiah. But the point is, if you remember any of that, you remember they all had these really cool names that made them sound scary or or larger than life and threatening. And and the good guys had cool names and the bad guys had bad names. So the bad guys here are listed. Sanballat. The Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and then later, verse 19, Geshem the Arab. If you're an Israelite, if you're a Jewish reader of the text, you recognize those names. You recognize the Horonites. You recognize the Ammonites. You recognize the Arabs. These people are never known as Israel's friends. This is like going back to the conquest and saying, these are the ites of the land, the enemies of the people of God, no friends of Israel. That is the point. And we are told that it greatly displeased them that someone had come, and this phrase is great, to seek the welfare of Israel. These three men, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, were greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel, not just rebuild the city walls, but to show care for the people of God. Let that sink in. Nehemiah had come not simply to rebuild, he's more than a carpenter, he came as one seeking the welfare of Israel, and it greatly displeased them. This sets the t- stage for the tension of the rest of the book. Now you know who the good guys are. Now you know who the bad guys are. You've met the antagonists and the protagonists. The whole stage is now set. No good movie or book comes without opposition. Every... Story has a bad guy in it, and in the biblical story, the bad guys are always connected to a bigger story the seed of the serpent. These people, these nations, this is uh, like uh, the opposite of the Justice League, is those who are in league with Satan of old, always opposing the people of God, always thwarting the plan of God to seek the welfare of the people of God. This is not a new tension, these are new names. But this is not a new tension. Their characters will be developed, but so also will the character of Nehemiah. If Nehemiah has been portrayed as a man of prayer and piety, the next scene shows us that he is cunning and wise. For the next several nights, Nehemiah will sneak out to inspect the walls. This just, to me at least, looks like absolutely fantastic uh, boyish fun. Sneaking out in the middle of the night and stealthily going around the city, looking at holes in rocks. Only a few men join him, likely his armed guard. He tells no one what God had put into his heart. He does not want anyone to see him or know what he is doing. You might even wonder why. Why is it at this point that Nehemiah is being so quiet and stealth-like? What's well, because, again, Nehemiah is not only prayerful and pious, he is wise and coming. He knows there's a time to be loud and there's a time to be silent. He knows there's a time to be stealthy and there's a time to be seen. He's discerning enough to know that, like a good general, he needs to survey the battlefield well before the fight begins. He needs to view the enemy terrain, consider not only what they have, but even his own losses, even the weak point of this fortified city. Faith and wisdom are not enemies to be reconciled. And Nehemiah here has both. Both are needed in times of war. Both are seen in great men. Both are seen in great men and women. Both are seen in missionaries when faith and wisdom work together. So Nehemiah, the prayer warrior of chapter 1, is now Nehemiah the spy in chapter 2, sneaking around like Batman in the night. I think I've mentioned all of my heroes, (laughs) just about. And I love the names of the places that he goes to or through. Think about these names. It sounds like a scene out of The Hobbit. The Valley Gate, Dragon Spring, Dung Gate, probably not my favorite, (laughs) Fountain Gate, The King's Pool, Just think about it for a moment. How many of history's great writers, Tolkien, Lewis, Bunyan, Harriet Beecher Stowe, were inspired by stories and even little details like this? Right? Uh, God's not simply a storyteller. He's a great storyteller. He writes not only great songs. He tells a great story with little details that fill in uh, the picture. But one thing remains, and it's our final point Nehemiah has yet to engage the opposition. So we'll think about that for a few moments. Verse 17 is almost a scene like Nehemiah the general calling in the troops. The very same people that he had not told what he was doing just a little earlier, he now gathers to him. we are given a list of them in verse 16. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. In verse 17, Then I said to them, this is the point where he now calls them together. Having surveyed the scene, he now reveals the need of the hour and the plan. Again, if great men are not born, they are made. This is the making of a great speech. Where the situation itself draws into profound clarity the need of the hour and the plan. It's hard to imagine. There's not a little bit of Gandalf or Stonewall Jackson embodied here in the spirit of Nehemiah. You know what I mean. Perhaps even a little bit of both. He shoots straightforwardly with them when he says, we're in trouble. This is not good. We are in a pickle here. How many different ways can you say it? We are in trouble. Let us rebuild. Why? Now, this is important. Make sure you capture uh, this, what may be uh, subtle but significant transition Uh, We are in trouble. Let us rebuild, not just for safety's sake, but to end this derision. This language of derision comes up again at the end of the chapter when these ites, again, deride Israel for what Nehemiah seeks to do. But it's very important language in the Old Testament because it's not simply the language of mockery between people, but ultimately the curse. That Israel has lived under. Israel is still under the curse. And it's broken walls and open borders were evidence of that curse. Nehemiah has come not simply to rebuild the wall for safety's sake. He's come to remove the curse and to end the shame that has been upon Israel now for many, many decades. That's why this is not simply a carpentry trip. This really is a mission trip. What Nehemiah has come to do is a task sent by God with missionary qualities all over it. It is not simply Nehemiah's plan, uh, the sentiment of an older man wishing that the graves of his fathers were in better shape. No, uh, this is part of the plan of God to restore Israel to a place of blessing. To lift the curse and his heavy hand that's been upon them and remove the curse, replacing it with blessing, putting his good hand upon them. So that's exactly what Nehemiah says in verse 18. The good hand of God was upon him. It was that good hand of God that pruned the heart of Nehemiah. It was the good hand of God that turned the heart of Artaxerxes. All of this is the plan, the very intentional plan, not simply of Nehemiah, but of the God of heaven, who is the God of Israel. And when the leaders of the land hear this, They strengthen their hands and their hearts for the task, and they say, Let us do it. Let us do it. The rally cry has been heard, but there is opposition. There is opposition. Verse 19 punctuates the response of the local officials. They are not supportive, they are not encouraging. Notice it. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, third name added, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice again, not simply their names, but their nations are mentioned. It's a collage of Israel's enemies. They jeered at us, they despised us, and they falsely accused us, according to Nehemiah. But notice what Nehemiah says. It is not a response of military might, but of spiritual trust. The God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants. We will arise and build. But then he rebukes them. He doesn't simply say what God will do for them. He also says, in a certain sense, what God will not do for the opposition. But you have no portion or right in Jerusalem. Again, This is clearly a spiritual battle. The language of portion and right is inheritance language. The land of Canaan was to be Israel's portion. This inheritance was to be their right. These are the descendants of Abraham. Uh, This land upon which they stand and over which they now debate with the opposition uh, is land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants after them. And the only reason Israelite is out of the land is because of their sin. In a certain sense, Nehemiah is saying to these three men, you are trespassing. This land belongs to God, and he gave it to us. It is their inheritance. It may be their sin that has expelled them, but God's grace is about to restore them. I want to pause and ask a question now. And that is, when we see this story, what is it that God ultimately wants us to see? Is it simply the story of a great man named Nehemiah, a prayer warrior uh, who turns stealthy spy, who now becomes something of a military leader and a carpenter all at once? Quite a lot for one guy to occupy. But is, but is Nehemiah the hero of this story? And is simply rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem the plan of God? Or is this not part of a larger story, that centers upon a larger stage with a much better hero. His name is Jesus. There are some things that they have in common, but there are some things that are actually quite different. And we'll begin with those things uh, that are different. In a certain sense, uh, Nehemiah uh, was sent by the king, but Jesus was sent by God the Father. Nehemiah enjoyed, at this moment, the favor of Artaxerxes the king, but Jesus was rejected by all earthly kings. Nehemiah was sent with letters that were protective of him, that shielded him from opposition. Jesus was sent with no such letters to shield him. Nehemiah was given a place, uh, an arguably uh, provincial, large, uh, protected place to occupy like a governor's home or mansion in Judah. While he rebuilt, Jesus had no home here to call his own. Nehemiah asked the people for help in his mission. And for Jesus, there was no one that could. There was no one that could help. And if Nehemiah came to remove the curse, the blight upon the people of Israel, it becomes remarkably clear that when Jesus comes for this far greater mission trip, there really is no one who could help him. He had to do it all himself. So what's the same? The point of contact is equally meaningful If Nehemiah came to seek the welfare of the people of Israel, how much more did Jesus come into this world on a mission trip, purposed in the heart and the mind of God, to seek the welfare of the people of God, to do for them what they could not do for themselves, to do for them what they would not do for themselves. And if Nehemiah's heart is touched to pray and to fast over the people of God, if he was burdened For them and their estate, how much more was the heart of Jesus touched and moved on behalf of the people of God? But Nehemiah came, beloved, to try to rebuild a city whose walls not only once more will fall into ruin, whose walls stand at this very moment in ruin. A temporary city is that for which Nehemiah came. And yet Jesus came, beloved, to build some city walls. Jesus came to build not a fading city that could be torn down by human hand, but an everlasting city that even now stands in the presence of God and ever abides for the people of God. Hebrews 13 tells us that in this world, beloved, and I'm quoting, here we have no continuing city, for we seek that one which is to come. The city that Nehemiah sought to rebuild, and even as successful as he would be, That city would again crumble, but the city that Jesus builds for you, beloved, will never crumble. It will never fade away. It cannot be attacked. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be removed, and you cannot be removed from it. In Revelation 22, that city descends from heaven to remain for all eternity, and the people of God there will dwell safely inside that city, and it shall be their portion and their right, their everlasting inheritance. And why is that? Or say it differently. How is it that any of us should become inheritors of such a lovely city? It's because to all those who were born, not by blood, or not even by nation, But ultimately, uh, born again into Jesus Christ himself by faith, to them he gave the right to become what? The children of God, and to have in him an everlasting inheritance, even a city. If you have come to Jesus by faith, you have a city that cannot be destroyed. You have an inheritance and a portion that cannot be taken. If you have not come to Jesus, you are still on the outside, and in a place of great threat. But we asked the question very early on at the beginning, what is it that makes men and women great? Well, it's not that they're born. It really is that they're made. They're born again. And for those who are born again, sometimes we, even like Nehemiah, find ourselves in a little bit of a foxhole where there are no atheists, and a little bit of a trial, sometimes quickly thrust upon us, where a quick prayer is all that we have time for. Or perhaps even going through seasons of suffering. Or maybe, and I think this is the rare jewel, in seasons of life where all is well. But one thing you learn from Nehemiah 1 to Nehemiah chapter 2 is that whether we are in season or out of season, there's never a bad season to pray. There's never a bad season to pray. And if you really want to know, for those that are curious, what makes a great man or a great woman? Where do faith and wisdom, like we see in Nehemiah, truly come from? Well, it's clearly and evidently the fruit of prayer and a close relationship with God through his word. That's what made Nehemiah great. He was a man of prayer. He was a man that was close to God, close to God's word, and then difficult times thrust him upon the scene. That's where heroes came from. That's what made uh, the great generation so great. It's not that they were born great. It's that through hard situation, they rose to the occasion. For the people of God, what makes us ultimately great in the sight of God and enables us to rise to those occasions, it's the very same thing as it was for Nehemiah. The good hand of our God is upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we might admit that perhaps in contrast to the great generation, we live in arguably an idle generation, where the idols of comfort and ease have in many ways lulled the giant to sleep. And being so well padded and afforded so many luxuries, it's hard to even contemplate things like self-sacrifice, sustained periods of prayer, even fasting on behalf of others. But we recognize, O oh Lord, uh, that history is in many ways something like a slinky, It's not a straight line with no repetition, nor is it a circle endlessly going round and around and around. It has a beginning and an end, but many scenes, many stages look familiar if we carefully look at history. and We recognize that the people of God embody a story. The people in Nehemiah's day embody a story, teaching us that there are moments when we need to pray and to do that briefly and quickly. There are seasons where we need to pause and humble ourselves, perhaps even pray and afflict ourselves on behalf of spiritual realities that are larger than us. And there are also moments in life when we are called to rise to the occasion. And this is when great men and women are truly born, when the hard providences, the hard realities of this present evil age cause us uh, to set ourselves and even our own personal concerns aside for the sake of the well-being of others. And so we thank you that Jesus was willing to do exactly that. He came into this world not to seek his own comfort or ease, but the welfare of his people. And that the good hand of God was upon him all the days of his life. And that the good hand of our God is upon us all the days of our life. So help us to trust you, help us to follow you, help us to live according to your word. And if you're pleased, O Lord, even from among us, be pleased to raise up great men and women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.